Good morning again. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some Bibles on the tables just outside the door there. You're welcome to grab one of those uh, for this time. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep that Bible. Uh, write your name in the front and take it home with you, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Let's pray before we uh, jump into Exodus 19. Please pray with me. Our Father, we come, as we have just sung, we come to you. We come to you, as uh, we talked about in Sunday school, because you have the words of life. And so we come to hear. We come to receive life from your voice. We pray, Father, that you would be with us now, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears, that we would hear and that we would understand and that we would receive your word and that your spirit would use your word in our hearts to transform us and to draw us closer to you in a way that brings you honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 19, I'm going to be reading uh, the whole chapter. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to, into the mountain to, or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments, and he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. 
Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down. And warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Well, I went to a basketball game yesterday, and knowing basically nothing about basketball, uh, lots of things were confusing to me. I was trying to figure out uh, why they were blowing the whistle at certain times and trying to figure out what each of the clocks meant had to actually ask David, uh, who was sitting in front of me. Uh, and, uh, you know, lots of people, when they walk into church, of course, it's that same way. They walk in and there are things going on and they just have no clue. Uh, why are you doing that then? Why are you doing this now? Why are you saying these words? And um, maybe some things we've done already this morning have confused you. I don't know. Uh, maybe you've wondered why we have done some of the things that we've done. Well, we're in a a series on our worship service, and the goal is to explain at least some of the things we do uh, when we gather together. And uh, I'm not trying to give a blow-by-blow of everything we do, uh, but I am trying to sort of paint the big picture to show how our worship is, is modeled after and walks us through the gospel week after week. And we started out talking about how God calls us to himself through the gospel and how uh, we even heard a call to worship this morning, which is an instance of that, God calling us to worship him, God calling us to draw near to him. We've talked about how God forgives us through the blood of Jesus, uh, which is why we confess our sins each week, week after week, to receive afresh his forgiveness through Christ. This week, we're going to talk a little bit about how God prepares us for his presence. And uh, you might think, well, isn't that what we talked about last week? Isn't that what he was doing in forgiving us of our sins? Isn't that preparing us? Well, yes, but there's more. Last week, we talked about God removing our guilt. Uh, This week, we're going to talk about things like uh, commitment and cleansing and clothing and shame. Uh, There's a difference, by the way, between guilt and shame. Uh, You you may know that. You have probably experienced that. Uh, There's a difference between the idea that uh, I've done something wrong and the idea that I am something wrong. Uh, Between there's something wrong with my behavior and there's something wrong with me. Uh, Guilt and shame are similar in that both are the results of sin in some way. Uh, But you may feel shame when uh, you have no personal guilt at all. Uh, You may feel shame just because you're different, uh, because you stick out, because you're abnormal in some way, whether good or bad. Um, You somehow feel like you don't fit in, or maybe other people make you feel like you don't fit in. 
You may feel shame not because you did something wrong, but because someone did something wrong to you. Shame is different. It's, it's bigger, it's broader, it's more subtle often than guilt. And what I find fascinating is that God is concerned about our shame. Although in the Bible it often talks about it in terms of uncleanness. He wants to remove the stigma, the dirt, the corruption. He wants to remove the sense of shame. And it is part of the process by which God prepares us for his presence. He removes our uncleanness. He removes our impurity. Well, we're looking at Exodus 19 this week. And uh, we're going to look at four things. You can see the outline in the back of your bulletin. Uh, The first point, going out and coming to. Second point, making vows. And then washing up. And then standing back and drawing near. So first, coming out and, and going out and coming to. Look at uh, Exodus 19, verses 1 and 3 again, 1 through 3. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Well, obviously, we're coming in mid-story, and uh, what a story it is. Uh, The Israelites who were slaves in Egypt, oppressed and miserable and crying out to God. God remembers his covenant promises to Abraham. He sees the, the people's misery. He knows their pain, and he acts. God sends Moses to go to Pharaoh and demands that he let God's people go. God says, let my people go that they may serve me. The problem is, of course, that God's people are uh, Pharaoh's servants. They serve him. They are his slaves. He is their master. And so there is uh, a battle of sorts. He will not let them go. God sends 10 plagues. You may uh, know the story. In in a sense, those plagues are meant to break the stubbornness of Pharaoh, but really they're to demonstrate God's power and glory, His, uh, his greatness, his power over and against all of the false gods of Egypt. The final plague is the death of the firstborn. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt are put to death. No one, man or beast, is left out. In fact, the Israelites themselves only escape because of the death of the substitute, the Passover lamb. The lamb dies to redeem the children of Israel. Finally, Pharaoh lets God's people go. And then he changes his mind. And he chases them into the wilderness. Uh, God parts the Red Sea uh, so that Israel can escape. And then he brings the sea crashing down on the heads of Pharaoh's enemies, Pharaoh's armies, thus drowning Israel's enemies in the sea. So Israel's out in the wilderness and they quickly realize as they wander in the desert that life with God is not going to be easy. God, but God nevertheless provides for their needs in the wilderness. He sends bread from heaven and water from the rock. And then in chapter 19, Israel comes to Mount Sinai. Now, this is actually an important moment because God had said to Moses earlier that one of the signs that God was really sending Moses would be that Israel would come and serve God on this mountain. And so here they are. At the, moment, at, at the mountain, in fulfillment of God's promises. And now, now they are going to meet with God. Which brings us to our next point. They've come out, or they've, they've gone out, they've come to the mountain. And now we're going to talk about making vows. 
Israel uh, is about to meet with God. He's going to come down on the mountain with fire and smoke. He's going to speak to the whole nation. They're all going to hear the Ten Commandments. But before God meets with them, uh, he must get them ready. And the first thing God does is remind them of what he has done. Look at verse 3 again. Verse 3 in the middle there says, The Lord called to Moses out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See, If Israel is going to meet with God, uh, they need to remember who this God is and what he has done for, him, for them. They need to remember his mercy. But there's more, right? God wants them not only to remember his mercy, remember that he brought them out, bore them as on eagles' wings is the, the language there, but he also wants them to commit to him as their God, as their deliverer. And so he goes on in verses 5 and 6, and he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And God says, essentially, look, Israel, if you commit to me, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. And uh, notice God promises really three things in those verses. Israel is going to be three different things, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. And if we had more time... Uh, I'd love to go into each of those in detail, but we won't do that this morning. But notice in general what God is saying. He's saying, if you commit to me, if you obey my voice, keep my covenant, you will be my special people. Uh, all the earth belongs to me, but you will be unique to me among the nations. I will treasure you more than all else. Now, in our culture, we have lots of possessions most of the time, but there, sometimes things mean just a little bit more than one thing means just a little bit more than everything else. Uh, there's something that is some, for some reason special to us, uh, something that is irreplaceable maybe. It may not even be expensive, but it has, the, the way we say it, has sentimental value, right? It means something to us. And God is saying here to Israel, all the earth is mine, I own it all. But if you commit to me, I will value you more than all else in the world. When God says then later that Israel will be a holy nation, he's really just being redundant because to be holy is to be set apart for God, to, be, to uniquely belong to him. So God is really stressing in all three of these phrases that Israel is a special holy people, a people whom he values more than all else. Moses comes to the elders and he tells them what God has said. And then all the people in unison, in verse 8, it says, All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. People give their verbal commitment to God. They say, Yes, we will do this. We will, uh, we will be your holy people. And uh, this, is, this is not really a unique moment in the Bible in this sense. Frequently, God's people corporately respond to him with this affirmation of commitment. You see it again and again. You see it in Deuteronomy. You see it at the end of the book of Joshua. Uh, you see it in the way that Israel used the Psalms to confess their faith together. Um, and it's not even just true corporately in Israel. Uh, God calls each uh, Israelite individually to confess their faith in him. Uh, you see this in the book of Deuteronomy. God's people are instructed to bring God the, the first fruits of their offering 
The people come to the priest each year, bringing uh, the first of their harvest, and they say this. They say, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And then the priest takes uh, the basket uh, with the first fruits. He sets it down before the altar. And then the people, again, are instructed to make this confession. They say, a wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there in number, a few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And, and it goes on. Uh, but after this confession, then the people of Israel are to rejoice there before the Lord. You see, every year the people are to repeat this confession of faith. Uh, It's a reminder of who they are. It's a recommitment to God, the God who had delivered them and cared for them. We find this in the New Testament as well, uh, this importance of of this verbal commitment to our God. Uh, Romans 10.9 is one of those great places that, uh, that says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Philippians 2, 10 says, A day is coming when at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's clear uh, even from the epistles that there were a number of early confessions that sometimes Paul is quoting, little snippets of a confession here or there. And central to those confessions is, is the confession that Jesus is Lord. Well, why is this so important? Clearly, God desires a commitment from his people. And that certainly includes more than words, but it's not less. It begins with claiming what you believe about God and what he did for you, how he cared for you, how he made himself known in the person of Jesus, the Lord, right? Yahweh, our God. And when you first became a Christian, uh, you know, you hear the gospel call, uh, you believe it, you, you trust in the blood of Jesus, your sins are forgiven, and whether you say it with your mouth or believe it in your heart, as Paul puts it, this is your confession, right? You come to the place of recognizing Jesus as Lord. What this means is you are now a part of God's special people. Right? You are a part of his treasured possession, his holy, unique nation, to confess the God of the Bible, to confess Yahweh, to confess Jesus in all of his saving power is to belong to God's people. It's one of the reasons we confess our faith together week after week. It's to remind us, right, both of what God has done for us, his story of redeeming love, but also to remind us that as a confessing people, we are are a special treasure to him. It is this confession that marks us out from the world, that this we believe Think about it this way. Think about wedding vows. Um, In weddings, you know, wedding ceremonies, the husband commits to the wife, the wife commits to the husband. Uh, This is a little bit of what is going on here in Exodus 19. God says, if you will keep my covenant, you will be my special people. Israel says, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They're saying their vows. They're committing to one another. They repeat that again in Exodus 24. See, when we gather together for worship, where we recount together what we believe about God and about Jesus and about the gospel, we're renewing our wedding vows to Jesus. We are recommitting ourselves to him again. We are saying, yes, this is really what I believe, not just last week, not just the week before, not just when I first became a Christian, but this week, right now, this is what I believe, and I commit myself again to him. 
Israel is getting ready to come before their God. And the first thing God asks them to do is to commit themselves to him as their deliverer. Which brings us then uh, to the next point about washing up. Look at verses 9 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Even now, the people are still not ready, is what God is saying. Um, God tells Moses he's going to come in a thick cloud, and the people must get ready. And there are two things that have to be done. Moses is to consecrate them today and tomorrow, God says, and they are to wash their garments in order to be ready. Now, we're not really told what Moses does to consecrate them. Maybe it involves sacrifices. Maybe it involves anointing oil. Um, Whatever the case, he is to consecrate them, which just means to set them apart. The word consecrate is, is related to the word holy. Uh, the word consecrate is to make something holy, to set it apart. And that's what Moses is doing, setting the people apart. And the people's either response to that or the people's role in that is washing their clothes. Now, it may seem kind of odd. Uh, I mean, what's the big deal? They're in the desert, after all. Uh, They're at the beginning of a 40-year hike through the wilderness. Is God really concerned that they come wearing their Sunday best? Is this about honoring God by coming physically clean? Is this about good hygiene on Sunday morning, right? Uh, Why this washing of clothes? Well, I think, you know, good hygiene misses the point here. Um, Ritual cleansing was important, an important part of Israel's religious life. Physical cleansing was a sign of being cleansed from the impurity of sin, of getting rid of any ritual uncleanness that might stop Israel from being ritually fit to come into God's presence. So Israel has been redeemed from their slavery in Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb, but they still must be cleansed in order to come into God's presence. That's also, by the way, what makes sense of those words at the end of verse 15, do not go near a woman, because that would make one ritually unclean. And so God is saying, come before me, cleanse ritually of impurity. It brings us back a little bit to the difference between uh, guilt and shame that we discussed earlier. Uh, The difference between guilt and shame really leads to a difference between forgiveness and cleansing. And I want you to think about it this way, right? If uh, a criminal is tried and convicted and serves his sentence, at that point, the law has no claim on him. His guilt has been removed, as it were. He's paid his debt to society. And yet when he's released, he still has the stigma of being a felon. He's labeled an ex-con. And the stigma of sin remains even though the guilt has been removed. Israel has been constituted God's special people by the blood of the the Passover lamb, by the vows of the covenant. But in order to dwell in God's presence, the uncleanness of their sin must be dealt with. Uh, You might have wondered earlier why we read Exodus chapter 30. Uh, In Exodus 30, it, it contains instructions for building a wash basin, a bronze wash basin. 
And uh, this bronze basin was in the tabernacle. It was placed between the altar and the holy place. And it was there for the priests to wash their hands and their feet whenever they went into the holy place or whenever they drew near the altar. They were to wash, and twice in Exodus 30 it says, so that they might not die. <laughs> God wasn't concerned they would have germs, right, and, and, and die of an infection. No, they were to wash so that they will be ritually clean when they came into God's presence. And picture the tabernacle. Think about it. The tabernacle uh, was a, a large tent structure, and the Israelites could walk into the outer court. That's where they would hand their sacrifice over to the priest who would offer it on the altar. And for the common Israelite, this was really the end. That's as far as they could go. They, they kind of got their foot in the door. They handed over the sacrifice, and that was it. But for the priests, they could go even further than the altar. Uh, they could go past the altar. The next thing they came to is this bronze basin. And that's where they would wash so that they would be able to enter into the holy place, the place of communion with God. It's interesting. What else sometimes happens at that wash basin, when the priest wa priests would wash themselves, they would take, on and put off, take off and put on their priestly clothing, so the priestly clothing was, uh, we're told in uh, Exodus, was for beauty and for glory. That's why God gave the priests special clothes, for beauty and for glory. And uh, the priests were to be cleansed and then clothed so that they could then dwell in God's presence in the holy place. Here in, in Exodus 19, all of Israel is to wash their clothes before they come into God's presence. Why this emphasis on cleansing and clothing and What's going on there? Think, think back even further to creation. God creates Adam and Eve. Uh, they are naked in the garden and unashamed. And then they sin against God and shame results. They immediately attempt to cover themselves in order to cover their shame. And once their, you know, their original righteousness was lost, they, they lose sort of this covering of created glory. And so they try to hide but God, prior to sending them out of the garden and into the wilderness, covers their shame by making clothes of animal skin. He covers them by sacrificing an animal. But of course, animal sacrifice never takes away shame, just as it never really takes away sin. And then later on, we have another story of a covering. It's in the prophet Zechariah. Maybe you know this one. Uh, in the prophet Zechariah, there's this vision of Joshua, a high priest, and he's standing before God in filthy garments. He's being accused by Satan. And uh, God has Joshua's filthy garments removed and says, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Notice again, there are these two things, two things going on, this two-step process, so to speak, of taking away iniquity on the one hand and then being clothed in pure clothing on the other. Being forgiven of sins is, is one thing, but distinct from that, in some sense, is being cleansed and clothed and made glorious. This is one of those great blessings under the gospel. You know, God in the gospel not only removes the guilt of sin, but the stigma and the shame and the corruption of sin as well, so that we can stand before him, not only righteous, but clean and unashamed and holy and glorious in his sight. And think about the passage that I kept quoting last week 
and, and quote often, it took on renewed significance to me this week, 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, according to 1 John 1, 9, God does two things. He, one, forgives us our sin, and two, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Now, you might say, well, John is just being poetic, right? It's just repetition for the sake of emphasis. That's often in the Bible, uh, repetition. Uh, but with the breadth and the depth of Old Testament teaching on cleansing, that's kind of an oversimplistic explanation. No, when we confess our sin, God does two things. He forgives us our sin. The guilt is gone. It's been taken away by the blood of Jesus, and he cleanses us from our unrighteousness. God removes the stigma, the shame, the corruption of sin, which is also taken away by the blood of Jesus. When God looks at you in Jesus, he doesn't merely say your guilt is gone, but he says you have been purified, you have been cleansed in my sight. You are clean. And for the Christian, again, Scripture not only talks about being cleansed, but being clothed as well, doesn't it? So we read in Isaiah chapter 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Notice all of the, the marriage imagery, the priestly imagery, God clothing us with his glory so that we can dwell in his presence. All those sins in your past that make you feel dirty, all those sins in your present that make you feel dirty in God's sight, those things that make you feel unworthy, those that, that, that make you feel not fit for God's presence, all the vestiges of sin, your own or even others, right? All the contagion of sin, all the mud left on your soul from the boots of sin, whoever's sin that might be. God not only forgives us of our sin, but he also cleanses us of all uncleanness and clothes us in his beauty. That's what is symbolized in our baptism, isn't it? Baptism says God has cleansed you of sin, He's not just forgiven you of sin. He has done that, but there, there's actually more. He's cleansed you of sin, and being united to Christ, you are now glorious in his sight and becoming gloriously new by God's progressive work in you. Baptism is a, is a, symbolizes the, the washing of the garments of our soul. And every week when we gather together for, for worship, we don't you know, have a great big hose and sort of sprinkle you all and rebaptize you. But it's good to remember, right, to remember as we gather week after week that as we confess our faith, that God has placed his seal upon us in baptism. He has given us his pledge. He has given us his promise of the cleansing of sin through Jesus. Well, Israel in Exodus 19, they're preparing to come before God. They've already been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and they've washed their clothes in order to come into God's presence this then is repeated again and again in the, in the temple. The priests offer sacrifice at the altar, and then the priests cleanse and clothe themselves before entering God's presence. This is a picture for us of the gospel. The sacrifice and forgiveness of Jesus are signified in the altar. The cleansing and glorifying presence of the Holy Spirit is signified in the wash basin. And this is important to remember, right, as we come before God, as we commit to him by faith, that he cleanses us of our impurity 
and clothes us in the beauty of Christ to fit us for his presence. It would seem then that Israel is all ready to come into God's presence, to come into the presence of their holy God. But this brings us to our final point about standing back and drawing near. Notice verses 12 and 13. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, you shall come up to the mountain. Israel is to put a fence around the mountain, basically. They're to put a limit around the mountain. Uh, They're not even to come up to the fence until the trumpet sounds. And even then... No one is to actually touch the mountain upon the penalty of death. Once God finally shows up, Israel realizes why all this to do about a fence line. Uh, Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. God comes calling. He comes to meet with his people and they're scared to death. Uh, Thunder and lightning and thick cloud and darkness and smoke, so much smoke, the mountain seems to be covered in smoke because the Lord is there as a fire, fire which burns, right? Fire which destroys, fire which devours. And the mountain itself trembles in fear. Then there are the trumpet blasts and they just keep going and they just keep getting louder and louder and the people must have been scared to death. Moses comes up to God, and immediately he, he sends Moses back down. Look at verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, as soon as he got up there, the Lord says to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And you might think, well, didn't God already say that? He already told them that at, at verse, back in verse 12. He already told them not even to touch the mountain. Why is God repeating himself? And Moses wonders the same thing. Look at verse 23. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And yet God insists, verse 24, says, go down, come up bringing Aaron, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Now, I want you to think about how strange the scene is. You know, God says, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to bring you to myself. I'm going to meet with you. And then the day comes and God says, stand back. Don't get too close. Mixed messages, right? Even later in Israel's life, when the priests can enter the holy place, the people themselves still have to wait outside. They're still at arm's length from their God. For all the shed blood, for all the ritual washings, for all the cleansing of garments, Israel remained unclean before God. They're not fit to stand in his presence. And of course, 
However, as we turn the page to the New Testament, for us, the situation is different. We read a little bit out of Hebrews chapter 12 earlier. Hebrews tells us that we have not come to that smoky, fiery, scary mountain. We have come to the heavenly throne room itself. Israel was gathered around the mountain and trembled with fear. They gathered to hear the law of God, and it scared them to death so that they said, don't speak to us anymore. Don't let God speak to us anymore, Moses. You go up the mountain. You hear whatever God has to say, and then you come down and just let us know after the fact. But not so with us. Right? We have gathered to hear the gospel, the gospel of God's grace in Jesus we are cleansed not by the blood of bulls and goats, which can never really take away sin, but we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 4 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. God is purifying his people. He is cleansing us, and we now with confidence can draw near to the throne of grace. Christ has made each of us to be priests, the New Testament says, to serve our God, which means we now have a right to enter into the holy place, to come into God's presence. Through the gospel, God calls us to himself. He forgives us of sin's guilt. He cleanses us of sin's impurity. And he calls us to, to commit to him, to confess him as our God, which means we can now come before our Father to commune with him, to hear his voice, to talk with him, to eat at his table. God, through the gospel, has made us fit for his presence, and we can now, with confidence, draw near to him. Of course, the story doesn't end there. You know, we're still not as near as we could be. I mean, we talk about drawing near, and you may wonder, well, what does that actually mean, Luke? I mean, we're sitting in the Y uh, on Wright Street in Champaign. Um, God is in heaven, right? Well, we'll talk about some of that next week, but it's true, isn't it? Uh, we're not as close to God as we could be. The Bible tells us that that day is coming when we will see him face to face. And Revelation 19 announces the day when we will enter into his presence immediately, and it announces it like this. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. See, God has made us glorious in his sight, and he is making us glorious in his sight as he purifies our hearts more and more. He sees us as glorious now because we belong to Christ and we're in Christ, but one day we will be glorious inside and out when God completes the work that he has begun in us. We will fully reflect the beauty of Christ. And as we are transformed by his love, we will love him and one another as he loves us. We will be like him and we will see him as he is. Let's pray. Our Father, we... We long for your presence, and we know that in some sense we, we stand before you right now. We are in your presence. As we gather together, Jesus promised, where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. So we know that you're here with us, and yet we long to see you face to face. 
We thank you, Jesus, that you have prepared us for that day by the shedding of your blood, that our sins might be forgiven, that the stain of sin might be removed, that the corruption of sin might be done away with, that that our impurity might be taken away, that we might dwell in your presence and see you as your pure, holy, glorious people. That's your work, Father, and we thank you for it. We long for that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.